been around for a little while. We've been, we've been just working through 2 Samuel, and if you're hopping in with us this morning, you're coming in on the back end of a narrative that we've been working our way through the last number of weeks uh, that stretches from 2 Samuel chapter 13 through to chapter 19. It's the story of David's son, Absalom, and the rebellion that he led against his father and all that happened in the nation. And, uh, and so as we are picking it up in chapter 19, just for those that haven't been with us, Absalom sought to usurp his father's throne, okay? And so he led a rebellion against his father. He came to the city of Jerusalem. David fled from the city. And, and now where we've left off is this, is the announcement that Absalom has been killed, okay? He's, he's died. Remember the crazy story? What happened to him? hung up in a tree, okay? Caught by his own hair, caught by his own pride. Joab slayed him in 2 Samuel 18. He's finally killed. And the plot, the conspiracy to usurp the throne of Israel uh, from his father, David, is crushed. So 2 Samuel tells us this, that, that Absalom had had schemed for years before perpetrating this plan. And it involved this. He went down to the city of Hebron where his father had originally been crowned the king of Judah. David had reigned from Hebron for seven years before he established his throne in Jerusalem. And there at Hebron, Absalom announced himself king and then he came to the city of Jerusalem. So we know this. We, this is one of the things we've gone over. One of the things that David did to protect the residents of Jerusalem was that he withdrew from the city and he went a long ways. He, he went down into the Jordan Valley. He crossed, you know, 20, 25 kilometers from, from Jerusalem down to the Jordan Valley. He crossed the Jordan River and then went up into the area that today we would call the East Bank or the Golan Heights. And there he got his people safe and then he organized and the servants of David got ready and they went to battle against the men of Israel, and David's men won because the Lord was with them, and in the process, Absalom is killed. So that's where we are in the text, okay? Just to kind of get us a bit of background where we're at. David is not returned to Jerusalem, but the word uh, of Absalom's death has finally reached his ears, and you know, David, on this particular day, he, he's struggling to be a king because the heart of a father's been you know, touched and, and rocked by the reality that his son has been killed. And so the grief, where we're starting is this, is that the grief of David uh, at the loss of his son has just overwhelmed him from being able to focus on the position and the reality of his kingship. At the word of his death, I'd say this, it's like the kingdom, Israel is like all secondary to him at this point in time. As you can imagine, he's lost his son, and his father's heart is broken. And so this is where we are in chapter 19. So check it out. It says in verse one, it was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned to mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And all the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. So this is just like tragic as we read this. In many ways, this is, this is a day of incredible joy, incredible victory. The servants of David had defended their king. 
They had defended their thr- his throne. They had defended their nation. The kingdom of David had not only survived, but it had eliminated the threat against the king. But any sense of joy or victory was lost at the depths of David's sorrow for his son. It, it's really tragic, actually, as you read that in verse 3. It's like victory is turned to mourning, and it, and it feels incredibly tragic that David's uh, men are actually overcome with shame. Can you imagine this? It's like they've won this great battle, and instead of rejoicing together, they steal away like men who flee in battle, the text says, uh, ashamed. And I, I think that it's... Uh, healthy as we read this to like sense that, to go, wow, this is brutal actually. This is really tragic because the idea of our Bibles, every time we open it, every time we read an Old Testament story is to get us thinking about Jesus and to get us thinking about his kingdom. And I think that it's healthy to see the disappointment here in this kingdom because the idea is, well, I guess we need to look for another king. We need to be looking for the coming of another kingdom. You know, Isaiah said that there would be a king who would come and those who would come to him, he would turn their mourning into joy. And it's amazing here as the people steal away from David, what happens for them? Their joy is turned to mourning. Their joy is turned to shame. David's men, their their joy turned to shame. But for those who trust in Jesus, for those who trust in the promise of his word, His promise is this, that when we put our hope in him, he takes our mourning, our sorrow, our shame, and he turns it into joy. Isn't that awesome? So thankful for that. So there is a failure in the rule of David. That's what I want to point out to you. There is a failure in David's rule. And here the idea is it is to get us looking for the coming of another king. Look at verse 4. The king covered his face. And the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And so, you know, chapter 18 actually ends with this same cry from David where we left off last week. David's sense of loss is so great that the Holy Spirit thought that it was necessary to tell us twice the incredible depths of his sorrow as he was crying out, gripped with that grief at the loss of his son. He's totally overwhelmed. Now, verse 5. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You today have covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that the commanders and the servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants for I swear by the Lord if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. And so wow, Joab just steps in. Aren't you thankful sometimes for a friend like Joab? For someone who comes and says, hey man, let's have a reality check here. Get your stuff together Pull it together. I mean, Joab uh, says, King David, you got to face the reality here. There are people that have paid a steep price to defend you. And they did so in their love and loyalty. 
They did so against your son who sought to make himself a stench in your nostrils and to take your life. He's the one who is expressing hatred and they express love for you and you've got things upside down here. David had, you know, those who loved him and he had those who hated him and he was returning to those who loved him hatred and expressing no sense of thankfulness. That's what we get here. No sense of gratitude for those who had actually come to his defense to save him. And by that action, Job says, look, you're putting the kingdom in more danger than ever. So Job says, king, give your head a shake. Pull it together. Recognize who is on your side before this whole thing goes disaster. And I just think, you know, for Joab and all his flaws, he certainly is loyal to the throne of David, isn't he? It's one of the things that we see about Joab. You know, we all need people like this in our lives who will say, you know, get it together, man, who correct us. When we've got our head down and we're confusing the forest for the trees, Joab got through to David. And he remembered that his men had put the good of the nation ahead of their own personal interests. These are good men. Verse 8, then the king arose and took his seat in the gate and the people were told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. Now this is kind of interesting because I think like about David, when you think about a younger David, one of the things that you see many times in the story of 1 and 2 Samuel is David like saying, I need to consult the Lord. I need someone to pray with. Let's get the the Urim and the Thummim, and meet the priest and pray about what the Lord is calling us to do and where we should go. And what is interesting about this older version of David is this, is that no such thing happens. That detail is missing from this account. You know, I I actually think of this about David. As you read here, it's like he has become the seasoned politician, man. In a sense, forgotten what got him to where he is, which was this. He was a man after God's heart. And he doesn't call the people to seek the Lord. And I think that this should serve as a warning to all of us. You know, in your early days with Jesus, when you're like, I need direction from you, God. And you go to the place of prayer and you're like, Lord, if you don't come through, I'm like hooped here. I'm looking to you. I'm asking you to guide me. And quite literally, as the years go by in our life with Jesus, our relationship with Jesus, it's easy to get things in cruise control. And to grow numb to that need for direction, we mature to the point where we say, oh, you know, I'm doing, things are pretty good here. And we forget that we need the Lord. And it's a very real thing. It's real in the life of David. So the king comes to the gate of the city where he is. The nation's divided, like our own, uh, because there were those who were loyal to Absalom. There were those who stayed loyal to David. Now let's check out what happens. Verse 9. And all the people were arguing throughout the tribes of Israel. Boy, this just sounds so pertinent, doesn't it? All the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king has delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he's fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? So it's like, wow, here we are, we're divided. Some of us were loyal to Absalom. Some of us were loyal to David. Prejudice and animosities at this point have to be 
set aside so that the nation can unite again under its king. Israel was no different from any nation in this sense. It's got 12 tribes. How many provinces we got in this nation? Our territories. There were lines that historically existed amongst the Israelites. 10 northern tribes. Two to the south, Judah and Simeon. Some folks had followed Absalom. Some folks were loyal to David. But at this point, they had reached the point where all of it needed to be set aside. Now verse 11. And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abathar, the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should we be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers, you are my bone and flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? So David speaks to the priests here. Uh, he was of the tribe of Judah. He was, he was first king in Judah for seven years before he sat over the other tribes of Israel, before the entire nation was united under his leadership. And many of those who had joined, joined his son Absalom in the rebellion would have been from the tribe of Judah. And so David appealed to the tribal bonds, you know, saying, hey guys, I'm like, I'm one of your own. Don't be the last to bring me back to the spot that the Lord has given me. Verse 13. And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God so do to, God do so to me and more also if you are not the commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. Now, when, when I read this, I'm like, okay, nice political move there, King David, to smooth things over. Amasa, we talked about this last week, was his relative, his sister's son. And Absalom, David's son, had taken Amasa and made him the commander of the rebellion, the general of his army that was leading this rebellion against David. Amasa had played this lead role in the conspiracy against David and the plot to take his life. And this is David's olive branch. Hey man, let's bury the hatchet. Let's put this behind us. By this time, I think David probably had discovered that Joab, Joab had been responsible for Absalom's death. So he could set Joab to the side. He could smooth things over with the rebellion, put Amasa into this place of commander over the army. And, and look what, other, and look what uh, David's moves did in verse 14. And he swayed the heart of all of the men of Judah as one man. Boy, this is leadership. And he swayed the heart of all of the men of Judah as one man so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. Verse 15 says, so the king came back. Is that what it, all it says? I'm missing a period there or something. The king came back. I got to actually look. I'm reading in my... Uh, of my pad. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. So uh, this is interesting uh, that the reunion happens between David and the nation at the Jordan River. Jordan River is always a picture of baptism in scripture. It's a picture of coming out of the wilderness into the life of the spirit. And in fact, David and the tribe of Judah met at a specific place called Gilgal. In the last couple of years, we've talked about Gilgal a number of times. 
in our church when we were going through Joshua and Judges and other parts of 1 and 2 Samuel. And it's very significant that the tribe of Judah meets David at this place called Gilgal. Gilgal was of great historic significance for the nation of Israel. Gilgal was the very first place when Moses led them through the wilderness and then passed away and Joshua brought the children of Israel into the promised land. Gilgal was the very first place where they set up camp in the new promised land after all those years of wilderness wanderings. At significant times, the nation had returned there to renew their covenant, to renew their commitment to the Lord. The last time that this would had happened was under the leadership of Samuel. He had led all of the tribes to Gilgal to say, let's renew the covenant with the Lord. And Gilgal in scripture, maybe you want to make a note in, in the margin of your Bible or whatever, but, but Gilgal in scripture is always a place that represents, that pictures for us the resurrection life coming out of wilderness through baptism in the Jordan to the life of the spirit, the life of resurrection. This is where David and the people meet and they say, from this ground we move forward. And I really like this application because the resurrection is the victory of the cross. At the cross, the cross is the message of reconciliation. The cross is the place where Jesus gave his life and reconciled you by his blood to his father. But God raised Jesus Christ from the dead after he died. And the spirit-empowered life, listen to this church, this is important. The spirit-empowered life is not lived on the basis of the cross. The spirit-empowered life is lived on the basis of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The apostle Paul said this, I want to know Christ and the power of his, come on church, resurrection. The resurrection, the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and resurrection powers made available according to the word of God to you and to I by the spirit of God. And there's a foreshadow in this whole scene. David is driven from his kingdom and he returns in the power of the resurrection. It's pointing us a foreshadow to Jesus Christ the rightful king, the rightful king of Israel, the rightful king of this earth, the rightful ruler and Lord who was rejected by his own and crucified. The appearance was when Jesus was crucified that he was driven from all that belonged to him, but God raised him from the dead and he appeared and ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. We meet Jesus on the basis of his resurrection. Back in our series in Joshua, we talked about this a lot. I love it. Resurrection power. David meets Judah at Gilgal. This is significant. Now verse 16. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharum, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. So all of this 
actions of reconciliation begin to happen between the king and his people. I'll just remind you, Blake shared with us when we were in this text about Shimei. You remember him? He was the guy who threw stones at King David and called down curses upon him as he fled from Jerusalem. He was of the tribe of Saul, and he said, all this stuff that you did against the house of Saul, David, it's coming back against you. And and Joab's brother, Abishai, had said to David, who is this man that he curses the king? Let me take his head off. Let me strike him down. And David had restrained him. And now Shimei comes back, and he brings with him a thousand men. Nice political move here to smooth things over. Look at king, we're coming back to you. And uh, Shimei brings these thousand men from Benjamin with him. Then we also have Ziba here. Ziba was Saul's servant. Ziba was the servant of Saul's son, Mephibosheth. Remember him? Mephibosheth was Saul's son who was a cripple, who had survived when David had taken the throne, and David had brought him into his own house, let him eat at the king's table. And and when David had fled Jerusalem, Ziba had come to David's support, claiming that Mephibosheth now believed that the kingdom was going to be his that it would be returned to the house of Saul, uh, which we're probably, I think we're going to find out is a lie. It's a betrayal on Ziba's part. So these men come to the king, and they help his whole family and his household across the Jordan River. This is no small thing, right? It's like David's fled with his wives and children and household and all of these things. It's no small task. There's a thousand men helping bring everything back across the Jordan. Now verse 18 And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And he said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold... I have come this day, the first of all of the house of Joseph, to come down and to meet my Lord, the king. So Shimei, here he is. He comes with a thousand men, pretty savvy. Smooth things over. He confesses his guilt. He says, please, David, don't take it to heart. Now, verse 21. Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this? Because he cursed the Lord's anointed. But David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. You know, I read that, I think, there's no doubt. This guy, like, he did deserve to die. Like, according to the law, He actually deserved to die. It would have been completely justifiable. Uh, But David says no on this day. And and for a second time, he has to restrain Abishai. The first time he, he restrained him because he said this, well, if Shimei is cursing me, maybe it's because the Lord told him to do so. And if God is gracious to me, I'll return to Jerusalem. And I actually think that here's David saying, God has been gracious to me. He's allowing me to return. This is a day for rejoicing, not a day for revenge. And, and I actually think this, with the pardon of Shimei, 
it's kind of like amnesty is being offered to everyone who partnered with Absalom. It's like the whole nation gets amnesty. And I was thinking about that. Wouldn't it be just awesome if that happened in Canada? It's like, oh, wow, that would be simple, right? If the leaders would just do that, if they would just say this, look, guys, everything that's gone on for the last two years, and specifically the last few weeks, we're dropping the mandates and we extend grace and amnesty to all citizens. Wouldn't that be awesome? It's like the slate's clean. You guys, this is what David does. And I'll tell you what, listen to this. This is what Jesus Christ has done for you. This is what Jesus Christ did for you. He said, every guilt, every crime, every sin that you've committed against me, I've removed it as far as the east is from the west. I've thrown it into the sea of my forgetfulness. I don't even remember it anymore. You have amnesty. Not only that, I welcome you into my kingdom as my son, as my daughter. That's how good salvation is. And this is how good it was on this day in Israel. Now Mephibosheth comes, verse 24. <clears throat> and Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet nor trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes from the day that the king had departed until the day that he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like an angel of God. Do therefore whatever what seems good to you. For all, for all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I than to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. Now this is interesting just as you read this because somebody's lying. Like between this man Ziba and Mephibosheth, somebody is lying. And my hunch is that it's Ziba, but the text doesn't tell us. We really don't know. And how's David to know? It's just like he's got two men before him and they're like saying opposite things and both claiming to be speaking the truth. And he does something here that I think is like brilliant. It kind of reminds me of Solomon. Remember when those two prostitutes come to Solomon and they're fighting over a baby? One of them, their son is dead and they're both claiming the child is their own and that the others is dead. And Solomon just says, bring me a sword. They're like, what? It's like, yeah, cut the baby in half and you each get half. And the mother cries out, as we know, it's like brilliant, right? It's like totally brilliant. The mother cries out and says, no, no, give that woman the child. And then, and then Solomon's able to recognize who the mother is. And, and David says to Ziba and Mephibosheth, I don't know who's telling the truth, just to divide the estate. And Mephibosheth is quite happy with that because he loved the king. Nothing is mentioned about Ziba. So I don't know if I'm just guessing, Ziba's the guilty party, but you know, find out when we get to heaven. Verse 30, and Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, let him take all since my Lord, the king has come home safely. Now Barzillai, the, Gil the Gil Gileadite, had come down from Rogalim 
And he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Now, remember this guy. I, I, there's a lot of names in this text, so I've got to kind of remind us who, who these different characters are. Brazilii was uh, one of the men who had provided supplies for David when he had fled Jerusalem and come to the East Bank. Uh, he had brought food and supplies. He was a very wealthy tribal leader on the eastern side of the Jordan. And it says this in him, about him in verse 32. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahaim. For he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, come over with me and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Apparently this guy had had COVID recently, so he couldn't <laughs> taste or smell anything. Can I, can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then, should you, why then should your servant be added, be an added burden to my Lord the King? Your servant will go a little way over to the Jordan with the King. Why should the King repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that, am I, that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant Chimham. We've got lots of text. Then let him, let him go over with my Lord the King and do whatever seems good to you. Sometimes I say to Lisa's mom, why don't you move over to the Sunshine Coast, you know? You're like 85, almost 85. Is she 85? I'm like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll build a little suite in our basement and you can live with us. And she says the same thing to me that Barzillai says, told David, you know, it's like, I don't want to go anywhere. Just leave me alone in my old age and I'm going to live where I live. Now, Chimham, this man, Chimham may have been his son or something. It was a great opportunity for him. So he says, take this guy in my place. And so verse 38, let's read through here. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me and, all, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you and all that you desire for me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan and the king went over and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal and Chimham went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half of the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then, why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king. And in David also, we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So I was thinking about this is like having little kids, you know. And someone is always complaining. My slice of cake is smaller than my sibling's slice of cake. And you have to say, look it, life is not fair. Get over it. I mean, we're bringing the king back. Let's just be united. But the claim is this. We have 10 shares in the king, meaning we represent the 10 northern tribes. 
And the men of Judah, because they're of David's tribe, they would have none of it. I, I, I like this, that they spoke fierce words to them. And it's like, okay, let's read on here. Chapter 20. I've got lots of texts, like I said, that we're covering. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bishri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bishri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly. That's worth underlining. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So here's this guy, Sheba. He's uh, some sort of leader who wanted a more prominent role. Thought that he should be a leader in the midst of this tribal conflict. I think there's a foreshadow here of the split that's going to happen in the nation. Ten tribes go one way, two go the other under Solomon's son Rehoboam. So this day of rejoicing and victory, is there's lots of division right away quickly. Verse 3. David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. You remember that these were the concubines who Absalom defiled his father's wives. And this is interesting. This is not by accident. These are the fun things in Scripture here. Ten Ten tribes rebel, and ten concubines are retired into widowhood. And it's interesting. It's like the lesson is this, that when you reject God's king, you will live a life that is like widow, like being a widow. But to embrace God's king is like having a husband, Ephesians chapter 5. We'll talk about this more in a few minutes. Let's read on. Verse 4. Then the king said to Amasa, call the men of Judah together with, to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed to him. And David said to Abishai, now Sheba, the son of Bishri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bishri. So these are David's like special ops guys. The, the Cherethites, the Pelethites, they're like special. When you read in scripture, they were a special unit amongst the mighty men of David. So like I would call them special forces. forces. They're led by Abishai, Joab's brother. Verse 8. When they were at the great stone that is at Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? Then Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bishri. Now, if there's one thing that you see over and over and over again in the text is that Joab is a total assassin, is he not? 
It's like this guy is always betraying somebody and sticking it to them. He killed Saul's general, Abner. Remember that? Way back when. He killed Absalom, David's son. He fakes the accidental drop of his sword to open up a Massa, like a can opener, and kills him, cold-blooded. Amasa, remember, Amasa had betrayed David. Amasa had been the commander of Absalom's army. And when, when David made this political move to try and put things in order, and he said to Amasa, go get the men and pursue Sheba, people didn't, I think people didn't trust Amasa. That's why he couldn't gather the army together and be there within three days. And so he shows up late. And Joab had no patience for that. He had no patience for losing his position within the house of David as the commander of his army. So it's cold-blooded. I don't know what else to say. He kills this guy. Verse 11. And one of Joab's men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. So the army's back under Joab's command. David's going to make him pay for this later. He's going to tell his son Solomon, you got to take Joab down to the grave in blood because of the things that he's done. Joab was a very powerful political figure in the kingdom of Israel. Let's read through. We're going to almost read through to the end of the chapter, okay? Verse 12. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone who came by seeing him stopped. When the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on to went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bishri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Makkah. And all the Bishrites assembled and followed him in. Verse 15. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah. They cast up a mound against the city and it stood against the rampart and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near to her. And the woman said, are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words, your, the, to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, they used to say in former times, let them ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. My guess is she was a truck driver. (laughs) Peaceable, faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man from the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bishri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Interesting days in which they lived, eh? Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bishri, and they threw it out. To Joab, so he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his own home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. So Sheab, Sheba wants to be the head of the army. Instead, his head gets tossed over the wall. Verse 23. 
Now Joab was in command of the army of Israel, and Benaniah the son of Jehodiah was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was in charge of forced labor, and Jehoshaphat the son of Ahilud was the recorder, and Shiva was secretary. And Zadok and Abathur were priests, and Ira the Jarite, the Jarite was also David's priest. So we come to the end of this chapter. <clears throat> David's back on his throne. But the kingdom, like I read this and I think this, this is, I think, key to this story. It's like the kingdom has not turned out to be as wonderful as everyone thought it was going to be. It's not like 2 Samuel chapter 7, if we were to go back there and like remember the promise that the Lord had made to David that his descendant would always reign on his throne. And it was all going to be a wonderful end, which is going to be true. But at this point, there's clearly like national decline happening, like we're experiencing. And it makes me ask, ask a number of questions. It's like, well, what do you do when things like feel out of control? What do you do when the foundations are eroding? What do you do when your expectations are like disappointed? Where do you look? When the foundations of a nation are like collapsing, where can you find certainty? Where can you place your confidence? Church, this, these are questions that matter. I want to give you two places. Number one, God's word. God's word, church. This world is an ambiguous place. It's open to more than one interpretation. Just talk to your neighbor. Talk to the person beside you. Sometimes it's unclear. Do I side over here? Do I side over there? But I'll tell you what is not ambiguous. This right here. The word of God is not ambiguous. It is utterly certain. It tells us about the nature of man. It tells us about the nature of God. And it tells us that the two meet in the person of Christ Jesus. And when life feels out of control, God's word is certain. It is secure. It is unshakable. It is full of promises that cannot be shaken and will not budge. And Jesus, if you said this, he said, if you will hold to my teaching, you will know truth. And the truth will do what for you? It will set you free. Church, God's word is an anchor. That's why we come back, we come back, we come back. And we drop the anchor of the word onto the rock. That's the second place we find certainty. In God's king. In God's king, in God's man. You know, I think in scripture, like David is one of my favorite characters in scripture. But I'll tell you this. David, as much as he is the man after God's own heart, he leaves much to be desired, doesn't he? He is certainly not perfect. And in this world of... I can't say it now. Cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. Hold steadfastly like the tribe of Judah. Man, they got it right. The tribe of Judah held steadfastly to their king, King David. Remember this? Remember those 10 tribes that left? 
And the ten concubines that were placed in a house where they lived in perpetual widowhood. To reject God's king is like to be left like a widow for the rest of your life. But to cling to Jesus, when you cling to Jesus, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, it's like, it's like he's a husband who gives his life for his bride. Paul said he's, he is like a husband who, who he, is, he is the husband of the church who cleans his church with his word. He promises, Ephesians chapter 5, that he will present his church to himself like a radiant bride, a radiant people. And this is the message of the gospel. That Christ has given his life for you and he is at work in you. And if you will trust him, if you will turn from your sin and turn in faith to him, he will present you to himself. He'll be a faithful husband. He will present you to himself. And man, I look forward to that day, don't you? Church, there is two things that we need to do in the midst of these days. Cling to the word of God and cling to God's king. Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come.